Welcome to TikTok on CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded territories of the Hukamanum-speaking Musqueam people. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Madeline Taylor. So TikTok is CITR's weekly spoken word check-in, and this week is our second week on air. Last week I aired it under the title Talk Time, but we've changed the title because this is better. Um, Okay, so we have lots of volunteers making all kinds of cool talk radio at the station, and this is a place to showcase some of their work. So this week I have a fantastic uh, episode of a podcast series produced by our new Indigenous Collective Coordinator, Salia Joseph. This is episode... Episode one of Mingling with Matriarchs. So stay tuned for the rest of the half hour to learn more about Indigenous women and their stories on UBC's campus. This is Mingling with Matriarchs by Celia Joseph on TikTok. Mingling with Matriarchs, storytelling, learning, laughing with Native women on unceded Musqueam territory. Warning, the following content contains powerful words by strong Native women that could literally knock your mocks off. Viewer discretion is advised. Celia Joseph, Queen Sna, Tanatin Slat, Quahomish, Snanamus Ohomeo, Alloin, Iaxduin, Isqualoin, Eotin, Stiquetal, Ehaichka, Musquiam, Osiam. My name is Celia Joseph. I'm from the Squamish and Nanaimo Nations. Thank you so much for joining us for Mingling with Matriarchs, a podcast series that is being conducted through the First Nation Studies program here at UBC in partnership with CITR Radio 101.9 FM. I want to thank the Musqueam Nation, whose beautiful, unceded, ancestral, and traditional territory we are situated on at UBC, and thank you for their ongoing generosity for letting us be here. Welcome to Mingling with Matriarchs, a podcast series that exclusively interviews different Indigenous women on the UBC campus and talks about the work that they're doing and how they've made spaces within the university to tell their own stories. The most common rhetoric surrounding Native women includes narratives of violence, victimry, promiscuity, and death. 
Where do these narratives come from? Why Native women? And why are these depictions so far from what we know about the women that we love in our communities? Anishinaabe, a Mexican-American scholar and activist, Dori Nason, talks to us about the work that she's done in Indigenous literature and Indigenous feminisms. Dori has a PhD in Indigenous women's literature from UC Berkeley. Dori has been a really important instructor for me and many others because of the work that she does and her relationship with her class and the topics that we cover and how intrinsically related they are to our own experiences. It was my total pleasure to interview her. And so really this was just an excuse for me to get the behind the scenes on all of this amazing work she does. So I really wanted to think about how she came to be able to teach Indigenous literature courses and feminisms courses. What was the process of getting there? And so we started at the very beginning, we started with her love of literature and I asked her where that came from. I was the child, and this is not a lie, that would get in trouble because I read too much. And so my parents would force me to put down the book and go out and play, which annoyed me to no end. And then just really fell in love with books. And so, of course, I wanted to go into the teaching of literature or just be in a program where I could keep doing that for my living. My dad is uh, Anishinaabe from northern Minnesota, and my mother uh, was a Mexican farm worker who grew up all over the states doing that work. And so... I was much more interested in Chicano literature and, and Native literature, and so I had dreams of maybe being a creative writer, but then realized that's just not my skill set, but mm -hmm. that I was good about thinking about what the stories had to say. And so I think I told my mom at five that I wanted to be a professor. What were the stories that interested you the most? I was mostly interested really in women's stories for a general category as a young girl, and so anything that was told from the perspective of some kind of oppressed woman <laughs> really got me interested in and helped me think through like what was their journey to get out of whatever it is that they were working towards. When did you start to engage in more of the work that you were wanting to do in school? You know, Native studies and, and Native literature studies really is, you know, a very recent discipline and so People in my generation are a lot, a lot of us are self-taught. But my first Native literature course was at the University of Nebraska way back. I'm not going to say the year. <laughs> just say it was before. A few years ago. <laughs> I wore lots of flannel and stuff at that time. I took a course. Her first name was Kelly, a Lakota scholar at the University of Nebraska. And she was amazing. She totally scared me. I was that student that took my first Native studies course for one, and it was on Native literature, and felt that I, I mean, I knew that that was my interest in where, who I, where I came from. I think this is a common experience for Native students in a university, but never had the chance to really explore that, and so mm. all that, like, identity stuff and feeling really shy and that I didn't know enough and that I should know these things and why don't I know these things, mm. it was totally intimidating because it was also, I was living in Nebraska, and she was a Lakota scholar, and I felt distant from my community and that my experience wasn't hers, and so I was just really shy about who I was, although she totally picked me out right away and, <laughs> and you know demanded I be present and talk and so I was also just a shy student kind of intimidated by that. She was insistent that students let go of their need to control the story and to, to listen carefully as they're reading through. I was the only Native student in that course. Unfortunately, um, uh, I'll admit this, I didn't pass that course. <laughs> I actually failed my Native literature course and now I teach Native Lit because I got so overwhelmed by the stuff right. that we were reading and I just 
I just didn't finish. But I also tell that story because I'm with my students who are struggling. I'm like, look, I failed my native lit course. You can do this. Uh, you can come back. And everyone has these moments in university, I think. Yeah, well, that also speaks to the real visceral relationship between being an Indigenous student and learning about your experiences and your stories. Mm-hmm. Like, I can relate to that, and mm-hmm. I know friends that have just had to had to step away. Yeah. Yeah. I witness it every year. <laughs> so I, I know what to expect and I know how to hopefully help students through that. And it's also just, you just know that that's going to happen. You're going to have mm-hmm. lots of people in your office and wanting to talk through things mm. and helping them through that initial stage. It, it's, it happens. Burst into tears. <laughs> it happens all the time. <laughs> so, and it happened to me too. At what point were you then further introduced to Indigenous literature and able to incorporate it into the work that you were doing? And how was that transition for you? I had the opportunity to create my own courses around Native and Chicano Lit. But again, I still had to create my own courses. And when that happened, it was really motivating. It was really freeing. It was scary at the same time because I didn't have peers to help me through that. Being able to think about how can I take the next step in my education to look at the questions that I was interested in literature, and that was, at that time, feminist literature, but there wasn't a lot of discourse around Native feminism Mm -hmm. in the States then. So when did that language emerge, and what was the context that it emerged in? Well, when I first started my project on knowing that I wanted to think about and articulate what a Native feminist literary critique might look like... Of course, my first step was to think about what is the state of Native feminism in the States. In the late 1990s, there was a bit of a reorienting of Indigenous women's activism in the States. Mm. So a couple articles that came out from Indigenous women activists tried to make a distinction between mainstream feminism and Mm. um, what Indigenous women were doing. And so they kind of wrote these pieces that refuted the term feminism as being something that was Western and white. But at the same time, I knew there were Native feminists, and how did they Mm. articulate what they were doing. There was early scholars in the 1980s who were coming out of the 70s and are trying to articulate what would American Indian women's feminism look like or what is Native feminism. And and so when I started doing my research, I was a little bit scared because I was like, oh no, everyone's saying that this is not important, this is not who we are, and it's mm. anti-Native, it's not Native. But I also didn't want to let go of that identity for myself mm-hmm. and became involved with a group of scholars at the University of California and professors from all over. So we met at a conference in Ohio and we just had these conversations really outside the conference in the, the place that we were staying and started to articulate what is important. Again, doing that same thing. What is important? How would we define it? Do we want to use the term? And if we do, why? Mm-hmm. And I think it was Cheryl Suzak that kind of stepped up when we were debating whether or not this mm-hmm. was a, a useful term to Native women. She was like, you know, we all kind of talk about this term as if it's static and only belongs to one group of people. Mm-hmm. And we're forgetting that we are women who grew up reading Audre Lorde mm-hmm. and Patricia Hill Collins and Gloria Anzaldúa, all these wonderful women of color feminists who have done the same thinking. and. How arrogant are we to say that it's a term that can't be indigenized and that women of color who have done that are being naive or have some kind of false consciousness? And it's also disingenuous because we use their work all the time, whether or not we credit it. So for her to get up and say that, I guess kind of ethically challenge us a little bit Mm. about our own, I think it was arrogance, Mm -hmm. that, you know, let's stop worrying about whether or not this term 
is what we want and let's like actually start doing the work in an academic sense. Let's start making this an important conversation because in Native Studies, you know, to a lot of people, it's still kind of dominated by perspective that doesn't take into account gender, feminism. So we wanted to change that. And so we started to do the work. We started to attend conferences and call ourselves Native Feminists and try to produce scholarship quickly that could bring this to the table. When you do say, this is my perspective, then people know what it is that you're going to bring to the conversation. Mm -hmm. They know that you're going to be focusing on the ways that colonization and gender are linked and that you're not going to let scholarship ignore those questions. Mm -hmm. You're not going to let the conversation that you're in ignore those questions. And that for most of us, the work that we're doing is focused on activism that's based on life or death. That indigenous women are targeted for elimination and not just culturally but physically so this work feels like it's is necessary but it's also it can't be ignored anymore and it can't be Mm -hmm. this theoretical conversation about a term a part of how you make the conversation about feminism more accessible is about thinking of love can you tell me what that means and also about your article we hold our hands up That piece that I wrote that talked about Indigenous women's love and resistance, it came out of a talk that I gave for a teaching at the Longhouse here at UBC for the Idle No More movement. And so I think on the panel with me, there was a number of perspectives that we were going to give to a mainstream audience here at UBC and in Vancouver about what do you need to know about what's going on right now in the media? Why is this movement happening why is it inciting so much buy-in by Indigenous people? Like, what you know, what is it that's happening around you, and, and how can you understand the people who were important at first in motivating the Idle No More movement were women, mm-hmm. whether it was the four founders or the kind of activism that was represented by Teresa Spence's Fast. I was thinking about this is what I think about this movement that I see as important to contextualize. And this is the same thing that I have in my argument about Indigenous feminism, is that it's not a post-70s movement. We might give it a term that's contemporary to the work that we do and the critiques that we're making, but Indigenous women have always been on the forefront of articulating a standpoint on Indigenous women's rights and place, not only in mainstream context, but in their own communities. And they have struggled to maintain or reinstate status for themselves, not not like Indian X status, but um, (laughs) their place, rights and responsibilities in their community. So I wanted to make that connection for people. And for me, it, you know, it has been such a struggle and such a challenge that I could focus on the struggle and challenge only and that kind of way of thinking about resistance, but I wanted to talk about their motivation and Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about it in a way that kind of, I think, encapsulates what is at the core of an indigenous feminist ethic is this love for your community, love for future generations, love for your land. And that's what makes that movement unbreakable and mm-hmm. continuous. And so if we can talk about indigenous women's resistance history in the context of love, that you can see that it's kind of never ending. What was the process of having your spoken piece turned into a blog? Why did you pick blogging and why was that effective? I think blogging picked me. (laughs) Um, It was published on the Decolonization Education Society blog. And it was, you know, of course I had to change a a spoken piece to add in like citations and links to other things, which was actually quite cool. When you do an academic article, 
you can't put a hyperlink in. You can't put, you, right. you know, you can't cross-reference in that way, which you can do on an online blog. And I think that was very useful for that piece, too, because I could say, you know, I'm talking about um, a letter from the women of Turtle Island that was beautiful, and you can link to it, and people can mm. go to it and read it for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so there's ways that you can make that article more dynamic than what it is that you're just saying. And I thought, oh, it's, you know, it was a good talk. I like that article a lot. It's definitely much, uh, shorter than an academic mm. piece would be in a, in a regular journal, which also makes it a different type of writing. And it's, I think it's more dynamic. It's mm-hmm. not easier to write. It's more fun to write from my perspective. So it's in between a creative writing piece and an academic one. So that's a benefit. The just exposure that that article, for whatever reason, became really popular. And it just traveled, you know, on Twitter, it traveled on Facebook. So and even now, I, I see it because you get those notifications from Twitter. It's like, somebody just tweeted your article again. I'm like, mm. man, that's been, that thing's now so old. Mm. So it just takes on a life of its own. It gets more exposure. No one's ever going to read something that I publish in an academic journal. I, mm. Not no one, but maybe like 10 people. It's not going to have the same purchase. And it, for me, it makes it less exciting to produce. Stuff that you can do online and and new media is something that can happen now. So it's much more activist. It's much Mm -hmm. more impactful in a contemporary, this moment sense, but it still has a life of its own. Could you talk to me about the It Ends Here series that was published by the Indigenous Nationhood Movement, and why do you think it was important? It was a website that was set up for this very purpose, so that you could put out something very quickly, and it would reach Indigenous activists all over the world who have visited that site, or non-Indigenous people Mm -hmm. as well. They did a series called It Ends Here. It Ends Here series is like, I think, one of the most perfect examples of the kind of new media stories and activism that online content allows to happen. When uh, Loretta Saunders was killed last year, there was a call out to respond immediately to how her death just brought to the forefront so much emotion, anger, sadness, and we wanted to to talk about it, and we wanted to talk about it in an activist context, and we wanted to talk about it right now. We didn't want to, like, write an academic article on it and have it take 18 months to publish and mm-hmm. in a context that nobody's going to read, and it's not, who cares? And so a call was put out to artists, to creative writers, to scholars in the field, and that meant really, really quickly to put this tremendous um, resource together from all these various perspectives on what did this moment mean to us and how can we not let other forms of media forget uh, not understand what what we're thinking about and how we think about violence against indigenous women what are some other things to think about as we utilize social media as indigenous feminists and activists you always say something like when you send an email when you're angry to just Mm. save it in draft and Mm. then think about it later and see if you really want to send that. The thing about academic writing in a regular journal, it's peer reviewed. You Mm -hmm. send it to someone, it's why it takes two years for something to get out. Mm -hmm. And you get lots of feedback about how you should say something, whether you should say something, if it makes sense, Mm -hmm. if it's problematic. And when you're producing pieces for online content that are are in a more kind of journalistic deadline, like I need this by tomorrow or I need this to put this out now, You don't have the time to do reflection in the same way. And so in thinking about putting ourselves out there as writers into cyberspace, how can we support each other and support ourselves in this process? To not dwell only in the violence, but to think about 
mm-hmm. resistance and resilience. Mm-hmm. But you know, you have to be critical of those things, and so you have to talk about it, and you have to have support, a community to support you, whether that's your online community mm-hmm. or your website that you're working with. Um, or other like-minded bloggers and people that you can can support you in that. We know online that feminist bloggers right now are often constantly under attack by trolls and things who use violent threats to silence them. Mm-hmm. When you expose yourself in that way, you're going mm-hmm. to get backlash. Mm-hmm. So you need support in many ways. And mm-hmm. I think it's really brave for indigenous bloggers and indigenous women to put their voices out there because it's... It's hard work, it's hard to think through, and you're also exposing yourself in ways that might be even more difficult and scary. What are some other things to think about as we utilize social media as Indigenous feminists and activists? You know, we've had a few of the questions around different campaigns, like the Am I Next campaign, or I'm Not Next, or those Mm -hmm. things, about how mainstream society understands it and I come from a lit background you know mm-hmm. this is something that we talk about all the time it's you know it's up to the reader to be responsible but you also as a person who's creating work you have to understand that your reader doesn't understand where you're coming from they don't know in terms of an indigenous context probably much about indigenous life experience mm-hmm. all they are reading through is their own stereotypes mainstream society assumes indigenous women are victims because they're indigenous, that they're drudges, that they're not respected in their communities, and you put something out that talks about violence only as victimry, then you might be reaffirming somebody's idea that indigenous women experience violence because they're indigenous women. Mm -hmm. So you have to be careful about how you're putting stuff out there that doesn't reaffirm somebody's commitments to their own ignorance right Um, do they have the tools to understand where you're coming from are they going to read it in the ways that you want to read it and if you don't have the time to reflect on what you're putting out there we can sometimes put things out there that you know I guess they'll do more harm than good right and so I think those were the representational critiques that a lot of people had about some of the online media campaigns around murdered and missing women was it just reaffirming ourselves as victims or was it actually challenging why violence happens mm-hmm. it's kind of like recognition it was like we don't need people to recognize this we mm-hmm. need them to understand it mm-hmm. and so indigenous critiques of wanting only recognition can kind of work itself out here mm-hmm. um, it's not just about raising consciousness because mm-hmm. people know this happens they just don't want to think about why and so if your campaign only th- is only aimed at raising mm-hmm. the issue it probably probably needs to go further and how do you think a successful campaign can do that well. <laughs> <laughs> the <Lord. answers>. please. <laughs> I think you have to think about this issue in all its complexity and pick something about its complexity that you can talk to mm. so thinking about speaking to this as one issue is impossible for anyone you know, and that's when I'm when people ask me to talk about violence against indigenous women. I'm like, oh, oh where do I start? Mm-hmm. Do I start historically? Do I start? Do I focus it from a resistance history? Do I focus it from here? I've chosen to think about it through love. I can't always do that because mm-hmm. um, it becomes something that people can just feel good about and not actually do anything. You have to think about what small piece of this problem can I attend to in this thing that I'm doing and then how can I do it creatively that's me and then to speak to others about it like ask people who are like-minded to to really offer you some feedback 
one of my favorite writers, if not my favorite writer, Linda Hogan, who's a Chickasaw writer. Journaling writes novels from the perspective of indigenous youth who are working through the emotion of colonialism and trying to get back to, I think, a space of self-love and love for their community. And her novel, Solar Storms, it ends that way. It ends with an affirmation. It ends with the main character saying that, you know, something beautiful lives inside me. Mm -hmm. And I finally realize that now. Mm -hmm. And so... That's generally my approach to these kinds of things is that you you have to get people back to thinking about how to live a good life and be a, um, an ethical person. Mm-hmm. And that starts with the self. Before we kind of wrap up, mm-hmm. is there anything that you're working on now or any work to expect from you in the future <laughs> apart from your <laughs> hours spent as a professor? <laughs> Well, I'm still working on my book project. Um, it's under contract with the University of Arizona, and it's kind of, it's very much all of these things that I've been talking about for years in courses, thinking about the intersections of Indigenous women's creative production and activism. It came out of a question that I had early on as an undergraduate scholar, thinking about um, the ways that people frame literature as either elitist um, practice or as not work, mm. not activism, right? If you're an activist, you don't sit in your room and type up a story and I just I just knew that's not how it didn't operate that way in my own life and from my own communities that stories were really important and held a lot of things traditional knowledge 